two great questions that every person must be very clear about if they are in Christ, and that is how you got united with Christ and how you remain united with Christ. Put it another way, how is it that we are numbered among the holy people of God? And once we are numbered, once we are part of God's household, how is it that we remain in God's household? So how do we get in? How do we stay in? Throughout redemptive history, it has always been the great folly and the temptation of Satan himself for the people of God to assume that there's something just innately wonderful about them that evoked God's grace, evoked God's favor. In fact, the ancient rabbis used to teach that it was Abraham's uh, inherent righteousness that caused God to choose him to be the father of of the Jewish nation and the means by which God would bring salvation to all of humanity. Of course, that's simply not true. (laughs) Any reading of Genesis will help you realize that Abraham was uh, a frail and uh, human being who made errors, who lied, who who stumbled, who uh, misinterpreted God's intention and and, uh, slept with uh, Sarah's uh, handmaiden in order to bring about Ishmael. It was a mess. But uh, God's favor was on Abraham because of God's purpose, because of God's sovereign, free grace, not because Abraham himself was so innately righteous. So one of the really important spiritual principles that every Christian must grasp is the basis upon which we are numbered among God's holy people in Christ. How do we get in? And we must dispel any notion, any notion at all, that somehow is because we were so innately lovable, we were so innately good, we were so basically righteous, that God could not help himself. God was compelled to bring about our salvation in Jesus Christ. And so there is this human dignity uh, that is ascribed to a depraved sinner that really doesn't exist. Sin robs us of our dignity. Not that we didn't weren't created with dignity. We were created up, upstanding, upright, dignity, in the image of God. But sin destroyed that. Sin destroyed our dignity, and it destroyed the image of God and our moral character. And so, the next section in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 22, the entire chapter, has to do with the fact that God's eternal purpose is to create a people for his name, who reflect his character, the, re, the restored image of God in themselves and into the relationships with one another and to the world. So we want to be very clear now, and Paul wants to make that vividly clear, I should say, as to on what basis that we are numbered among the people of God. 
So let's look at that. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read the whole chapter. It's short. It's it's to the point. But I, I really think, and by the way, I might just say parenthetically here, that if your Bible reading consists of a verse here and a verse there, t- largely tied to a devotional for 10 minutes over coffee in the morning, you're not going to ever understand God's purpose. Uh, it, it's, it, the scripture is presented in the way it's presented within the pages of the Bible for us to be, uh, to be read the way it was written. Uh, if we were truly ideal, we would sit down and read a whole letter every time we read any of the epistles. We would sit down to read the whole gospel any time we engaged Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, the history of the church in, in Acts, we would we would engage the whole thing. In other words, we really need to look at the whole pie to understand the value of the message that's being contained in there. So be patient, be exercise some godly discipline as we read through Ephesians chapter 2. Quote, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and what you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. <clears throat> All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Excuse me. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope, without God in the world, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose is, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, 
thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. End quote. Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired word. Amen. So let's unpack this a little bit here. He, Paul begins quite immediately by stating the state, the diagnosing the status of the human condition. And that is dead, spiritually dead in transgressions, transgressions, excuse me, transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of the world. Now, we were dead spiritually, we were dead morally, but although our conscience remained alive, even that became seared as we progressed in sin. So we were alive in which we used to live, but we were dead. In other words, we were quite literally among the walking dead. We follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In other words, we were Satan's servants, willing slaves to Satan himself, who continued to promise that if we did things his way, we could get everything we ever wanted. The spirit, so it's a spiritual state, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. They, can be any, they can't be anything but disobedient. Now, there are good-appearing, good people in my neighborhood, for example. I've worked with good people. But in the final analysis, if you deprive them of what they want, if you, if you say no to them enough, if they are asked to live within constraints, they will become quickly something less than nice people. They hate God. Now, you can say, I have a lot of nice friends and neighbors and even family members who are just nice people. Well, that's good. But the issue isn't with you. The issue isn't, their battle isn't with you necessarily. Their battle is with God. The hostility that they feel and they live with constantly is between them and God, not them and you. Family and friends and neighbors can be very friendly towards you, at least until you declare yourself to be a Christian and walk in God's ways, and then they'll be less than warm towards you because you place yourself in the same line of fire as they have towards God. 
So they are the the spirit is a spiritual battle is now at work in those who are disobedient. Important phrase: work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. In John chapter three, we learn that people don't come to the light because their deeds are evil. They don't want to have their deeds exposed, and the light will expose them. So they love the darkness instead of the light. You know, the essence of what it means to be a sinner is to be able to do whatever I want, when I want, with whomever I want, and with impunity, and not have any regard for what anybody has to say, including, and most especially, God. Sin is the attempt to grasp full, unrestrained, unmitigated autonomy to do whatever I want, whenever I want to, and with whomever I choose. That's the essence of evil. And so we're all following the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts our desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now what we'll discover here in a few minutes is that this was true of both Jew and Gentile. Even though he's describing the Gentile state, the only restraining difference between the Jew and the Gentile was Torah, the law. So the Jews were at least able to establish some kind of external piety, some kind of moral restraint, sometimes, where the Gentiles were just unleashed. But that moral restraint of the law proved only to expose sin, even in the Jewish people, which is what the law's intention was, is to reveal sin, to reveal God's holiness and sinful man. But instead of understanding it like that, the great folly, again, of the ancient rabbis, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the uh, uh, scholars of the law, the scribes, was to assume that God chose them. They were God's chosen people because of some innate righteousness that made them better than the Gentiles. And what we're learning here is that this is a human condition, a basic human condition amongst humanity, Jew and Gentile. We were dead in transgressions and sins, meaning that we were morally incapable of responding to the gospel. We may have been alive. We may have been following the ways of this world. We may have, by all appearances, looked like we had it going on but we were really servants of Satan, spiritually and morally dead. So, the good news is that Paul tells us in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us who were dead in transgressions and sins, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. In other words, 
at Christ's resurrection, God included you and I in his resurrection. Christ's resurrection became our own resurrection. The resurrection power by which he raised Christ from the dead. Remember that. That that we learned in uh, chapter 1, verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So we've been made alive. We who were dead in transgressions and sins, both Jew and Gentile, have been made alive in Christ. It is by grace, therefore, you have been saved. Very important. That's the basis. That's the basis by which Jew and Gentile enter into God's holy people. Now hold on. Stay stay with me. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's our positional status with God. We are not low-life snakes slithering through the grass as depraved sinners in God's eyes. We have been we are those rather who have been made alive in Christ have been raised up with Christ, who are seated with him in the heavenly places. That's our positional status with God. Wherever Christ is, there we are. Wherever he, we are, there he is. For it is by grace, he says a second time, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God that summarizes how it is we enter into God's household. Both Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile both. Listen, there's a teaching in the land, and there has been for the last 200 years, that somehow God has two covenants and two plans. He's got a plan for the Gentiles and a plan for Israel, national Israel. That is a heresy. That is an unbiblical teaching. It stems from the old Schofield Study Bible, it stems from Darbyism, better known as dispensationalism. It is a heresy. God does not have two people, nor does he have two plans of salvation for those individual people. It is by grace you have been saved, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. That is, by autonomous works. There's just nothing we could do that would be good enough to evoke God's grace. It just doesn't work that way. Any works that we do as Christians is an expression of grace received, not a means of grace. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Christ, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then the balance of our text today, he is explaining what it means now for Jew and Gentile, the Gentile who was once excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world, now... In Christ Jesus, we who were as Gentiles far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, and his blood is our peace, who has made the two groups, what two groups? 
What's two groups? Jew and Gentile, not sinner and saint. That's the context. The context here is Paul is making it very clear that there's one point and one basis of entry into God's household, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself, please listen carefully now, is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier. Isn't it just like man in his religiosity to recreate and re-erect erect the barrier that God has destroyed? And that's exactly what dispensationalism does, brothers and sisters. It recreates a barrier. It recreates a division. It sets up a wall of division between Jew and Gentile that God has destroyed in the gospel. The dividing wall of hostility by setting in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. By setting aside, I should say, in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. Now, there are some good Reformed people, some good Calvinist people that will take exception with that. There are those who really believe that the law is still in place. There are those who will even teach you that you must come to the law before you can come to Christ. There are those who will teach you that you must look to Moses to gain sanctification in Christ. See, every time, every time man gets his grubby little hands on the gospel, he makes it back into something that it isn't in order to serve his own agenda whether you're a dispensationalist or whether you're a Reformed Presbyterian, it's the same mentality. But here we hear clearly, read the text clearly. His purpose, whose purpose? God's purpose, his eternal purpose. Now, how do you know it was eternal, Rick? Because he said so in verse 4 of chapter 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So his, his purpose, <clears throat> back to our text, chapter 2. His purpose was to create a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 So God has actually created in Christ a new people. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This is why Paul says so clearly in Galatians 3, there is no more Jew or Gentile. We who are in Christ Jesus are all children of Abraham. And that Jesus, in Galatians 3.16, is identified as being, in fact, Israel. Jesus, in Galatians 3.16, is identified by Paul the Apostle with all the authority of the risen Christ to be Israel. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, he says in Galatians 3.16. Scripture does not mean to say into seeds, meaning many people, that is the whole nation of Israel, but into your seed, meaning one person, 
who is Christ. One person. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed through which God promised Abraham he, his heirs, would redeem the world, through whom God would redeem the world. And that is Jesus himself. Jesus is Israel. And if we are united to him, whether we have a Jewish background or a Gentile background, we are now the people of God. We are the one new humanity. Isn't this good news? But it is earth-shattering, too. I mean, if you've grown up in a dispensational church where you've been taught all your life that somehow Israel, that God is not done with Israel yet, he still has a plan for Israel that does not include the church. In fact, you've probably been taught that God is going to rapture the church out of the way, secretly rapturing the church out of the way, which is another false doctrine, in order to be able then to turn to Israel and finish his promises with Israel. I mean, there's just no end to the falsehood that is resolved and smashed. However, when you actually read the biblical text within its context, historical, grammatical, and literary context, we just read it, didn't we? If you're in an independent Baptist dispensational church, or any kind of dispensational church, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 22, will destroy your system of theology. Because it's a man-made system, folks. I'm here to tell you, it's a man-made system. I subscribed to it for 20 years. Unwittingly. I was told. I was told that, you know, Israel is still God's people and that God still has a plan for them and the church is all Gentiles and one day when the church is raptured out of the way that God will finally deal with Israel and he'll have a heavenly people called the church and he'll have an earthly people called Israel and God had two plans, two covenant. There would be the rapture, there would be the tribulation, there would be the millennial, millennium. It was just something I accepted. And you know what? Nobody ever said, search the scriptures and see if this is true. Nobody ever encouraged this. And no one who's touting some theological system will ever encourage you to search the scriptures to see if it's true. In fact, they'll tell you that, oh no, our system represents the best of the scriptures. Whether it's some dispensational system that I'm talking about, or on the Reformed side, some creed and confession. Why do men make creeds and confessions? In order to hand them to you instead of a Bible. You say, no thank you, I have my Bible. I've been in Anglican churches where we, we recite the Nicene Creed. Just as another example. There is one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, it says in the creed. Really? There is one baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Well, that stems from the tradition and within Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Anglicanism that there is this baptismal regeneration, that, that we are saved through baptism, that God, the Holy Spirit, is actually obliged at the command of the 
cler clergy to respond to a act of baptism as a point of regeneration for the one being baptized. There is therefore one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. People every week say that in the liturgy. What that liturgy is saying, what that Nicene Creed is saying, is that baptism saves us. It's baptism that saves us. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Okay, getting kind of off on a rant here. But, but what I'm trying to help you see is that the basis upon which we enter the people of God and the, the basis upon which we stay in the people of God is grace through faith. That's the Protestant ethic. That's the vision that Luther captured, recaptured. And even though he ultimately had to compromise it himself, to much to his depression, much to his dismay, in order to remain within the, the favor of the German state church, he did initially catch that vision. It was by grace, through faith alone, that we are saved, in the finished work of Christ alone both Jew and Gentile. Okay, verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access. We both, both who? Who are we talking about? Jew and Gentile. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews, for through him we both, both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Make a note of this text. Make a note of Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, because he does go in to further elaborate this. And you might read Romans 1, 2, and 3 again. Those first three chapters also he deals with it. It's a consistent theme of Paul the Apostle and all the Apostles throughout the New Testament. But men and their systems of theology and their creeds and confessions almost rely upon you not reading the text for yourself. For if you ever did, as I did, and others have done, you'll discover the weaknesses in your system. There are some strengths. It isn't black and white. But you'll learn to, you'll learn to give your authority and your attention to the inspired text and not the written creeds and confessions and systems of men. They're always folly, faulty. They're always fallacious in some parts. Okay, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, you Gentiles, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, individually and collectively. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You individually and corporately, both Jew and Gentile together, and in 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 God's household represent the fulfillment of the promise of God to restore his presence to his people. Is that amazing or what? 
God once pulled his presence from the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. That was the prelude to Babylon coming in, destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple. And ever since then, since the exile and the return, the people of God have been longing and waiting for the former glory of the temple, the former glory in which God's presence dwelt among them. And what he's saying here in these final verses is that that former glory has been restored. That former glory has been fulfilled and restored. That promise that God will once again not only take up residence among his people, as in the old ancient temple, but now within his people. He is no longer God among us, nor is he only God with us. He is God in us. Both Jew and Gentile are the temple of God together. The household of God. So God's purpose, his eternal purpose, to create a people by which, um, for his own name, through whom his character is reflected in their relationships with one another and into creation has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, fully realized in Jesus Christ. And is at work in you today, even this moment, in this present evil age, though it is yet to be fully realized when our Lord returns. So God's eternal purposes, his redemptive purposes, has been fully realized in the person and finished work in Jesus Christ. Everything centers on Jesus Christ. It doesn't center on national Israel. It doesn't center on the Gentiles. It doesn't center on the Book of Mormon. It doesn't center on the Pope in Rome. It centers on Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is our peace. Reconciliation with God. Reconciliation among the nations. So there's no more Jew and Gentile. There's only one new humanity. And this is all God's work. That's why he starts out this section by telling us, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In other words, there was simply nothing at all that we could have done to evoke, invoke, or attract this degree of mercy. It is by grace you have been saved. That's your entrance point. Grace through faith in the finished work of Christ alone. And then we are, we are secure in that. We are secure in that status. And we're secure because we didn't get ourselves there. Once you're in, you are in. Now, you may stumble, you may fall. You may take three steps backwards. But God will always recover you. God will always help you up. God will brush you off when you stumble. And if you're prone to some besetting sin, God will discipline you. You are his child. But he will never forsake you. And you will never not be named among his people. 
So what's the basis then by which we enter the household of God? It is by the sovereign grace of God who made us alive in Christ even though we were dead in transgressions and sins. Don't let anybody tell you that you are in Christ because of your choice, your autonomous choice. That's not how it works. Don't let anybody tell you that it is by their free will choice that they are in Christ. That's not how it works. People who are dead morally and spiritually cannot exercise free choice. They are slaves to sin, slaves to Satan himself. And that's evidence in the fact that they don't want to. Listen, people who are, are caught in trespasses and sins simply do not want to do anything other than they're doing. So we, we, are, we enter the household of God by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ alone, whereby God unites us with his Son. And once we are united, we will never be not united. You don't have to continue to add your good works in order to preserve your salvation. We will do good works, but it's not so we can maintain favor with God. It's because, or to earn grace, it is because of a grace received that we naturally do good works. Works of love, works of mercy. Works that reflect the holiness, goodness, and righteousness of God our sovereign creator in Christ Jesus. Amen.